Welcome to the latest episode of High Stakes. I'm Paige Soya. I'm the Managing Director of K Street Capital. And today's episode will be about the newly launched Tech Hubs program, what it is, what it means for the tech industry, and how it's all going to work. And we have three people from the K Street ecosystem here who are very relevant in this discussion. One of our investors, George Hornado, has been very active through his work on this program. Blake Hall, who's one of our CEO founders for, gosh, I don't even know, probably eight years that we've invested in from seed stage all the way through up to unicorn stage. And David Yarkin, who is one of our investors and one of our founders that we invested in. So lots of unique perspectives here. But before we jump into it, I want to do a few intros. So maybe Blake, we'll start with you. Thanks, Paige. Blake Hall, co-founder and CEO of IDME. We help people verify their identity faster so we can streamline their life wherever they go. It's like Visa for everything. Third generation soldier. So my introduction to identity came in the military when I was a combat platoon leader in Iraq. I started the company from my rugby buddy's couch 13 years ago. And and today we're worth a couple billion dollars and have 800 employees and 109 million users. So excited for this conversation today. Very cool. Thanks, Blake. Um, George. Well, first, thanks so much, Paige, for having me and great to be alongside Blake and David here to talk about this transformational program. My name is George Tornado. I'm the president of NATO Strategies Consultancy, specialized in, in some of my hodgepodge interests of government affairs, political consulting, and athlete representation. On the government affairs side, you know, there's been a lot of legislation during uh, Biden's term signed into law that presents a historic funding environment in which I help clients, whether it be corporations or state and local governments, gain funding for projects that affect their communities in a positive manner. So I decided to hang my own shingle after two plus years of the law firm where I did similar work. And prior to the law firm, you know, my experience was heavily political from voter protection on the Biden campaign, mayoral outreach at the Obama Foundation a national deputy political director on Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign. And in terms of K Street Capital, I've been a member for about two years now and was recommended by Mark Bohannon, a, a fellow member who I came to know well during the, the 2020 presidential cycle as he was a, an ardent Pete supporter. And so that's a bit about my background and I look forward to, to digging into the conversation. Well, thanks, George. And David? Uh, hello, everybody. This is David Yarkin. I'm the founder and CEO of Procurated, which is an early stage startup. We're often likened to Yelp for government. So we're a platform that lets people in government procurement make more informed choices about the suppliers they're going to select based on their actual real experience of their peers across the country. And I think probably similar to Blake, the impetus for starting this came from an earlier professional experience. So I was the chief procurement officer of the state of Pennsylvania for a number of years and ran into this problem constantly about picking suppliers that may have not had the best track record because we had no visibility into it. And a little bit about me, I live in DC, work in DC. So excited to talk about today about DC as a great place to, to start and grow a business. Yeah, I think everyone on this call lives in DC, right? Yeah. Or the DMV at least, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, very cool. So maybe, George, you can help me kind of kick this off, because I think what I wanted to talk about is just how the first NOFO dropped recently, about a month ago, for the Tech Hubs program. And maybe you can elaborate a little bit about what the program is and what the timeline is around it. 
definitely, definitely. So there's a lot of info here. So I'll try and distill it and just feel free to jump in if there are any specific questions around it. But in terms of thinking about the basics, I guess one, let's start off with kind of the background. And then so the whole purpose is to invest in 20 regional tech and innovation hubs across the country, bringing together state and local governments, institutes of higher education, labor unions, you know, industry partners, community-based organizations, et cetera, to create these regional partnerships and consortiums to develop the tech innovation, manufacturing sectors in one of 10 key technological focus areas. So every entity that applies as a consortium has to identify what their focus area is and how their vision is going to be built towards implementation towards. And so these hubs at the end of the day, over quite a time horizon, will create jobs, they'll spur regional economic development, and they'll position communities throughout the country to kind of lead in these high growth highways. So I've talked to some entities where you know, the thing that really makes sense based off their industry partners or based off what, you know, surrounding institutions of higher education are focused on would be, you know, biotech. I'm talking to another where it's, you know, uh, ocean tech, you know, is what they're, they're interested in and, uh, and climate related issues. So it really is kind of expansive and across the board, you know, there are other areas that are wanting to be on top of the AI wave. And so it, it really is, you know, flexible based off regions capabilities. Got it. And George, like, I, I know the program, it's a huge amount of funding. It's like a $10 billion program. Mm-hmm. I remember you were talking to me about this a while ago, but maybe you can share a little bit about how that funding gets allocated and yes. how many cities there will ultimately be and how long it's going to take to kind of establish them. Definitely. So, so uh, it's $10 billion over the next five years, obviously. That is what is authorized. That is not yet what's appropriated. And so in the omnibus in last December, $500 million was appropriated for the program. So that's currently what we in President Biden's budget. He asked for another $3 billion to be appropriated. So you know, over future funding cycles, we will then hopefully see more money appropriated to the program to be dispersed for, for you know, entities going forward. But for this go around, the way that it's being broken up is there's phase one and there's phase two. So in phase one, which is what opened up with the notice of funding opportunity, uh, you know, about six weeks ago, the economic development administration will designate at least 20 tech hubs across the country and separately award about $15 million in planning grant money. So that's going to be depending on the entity between $400,000 and $500,000 in federal funds each, depending on the level of local map that they qualify for. So the deadline to apply is on August 15th. So applicants for phase one must choose whether they're going for planning grant money, a tech hub designation, or both. So if you are interested in going for implementation grant money, which I'll come to later, then the EDA encourages you to only go for the tech hub designation and not the planning grant money. So so that's a key thing. Phase two is the opening up of the implementation grant. So phase two will happen in early August, and that is going to come after they announce who are the 20 plus entities that received planning grant money and or tech hub designations. And so amongst that 20 plus, there will then be five to 10 entities and consortiums that receive implementation grant dollars, which are going to initially be in a 50 to $75 million range. It doesn't mean that they can't get more money later on as more money is appropriated to the program. 
But based off where funding is now, that's what, that's what they'll be able to get. The reality is the vast majority of, you know, prospective consortiums and entities that I'm talking to across the country are not at the place to go for a designation in, in phase one and then implementation grant money in phase two. So instead, most entities will be going for the designation in the planning grant money in phase one so that that planning grant money will give them the time and the leeway to prepare to be able to go for implementation grant money in a future funding cycle. And so only entities that apply uh, during phase one as tech hubs are going to be eligible to apply for phase two. But they're very, very clear, the EDA, is that don't go for a planning grant uh, opportunity if you're ready to pull the trigger and apply this fall for implementation grant money. So that's a key thing. Very cool. So I think this sort of ties into our next question, next sort of like topic uh, on this on this stream. But I think the the maybe you can share your thoughts on what cities you think would be likely to like what kind of city would be likely to succeed in the, or entity in the application process of building a tech hub. And then we'll sort of talk a little bit about D.C. as an example in a second. So number one is, is a city that has kind of those building blocks that I mentioned for the consortium and that has you know, strong industry partners and whatever the key technological focus area is that has real buy-in from government at all levels with interest and engagement and kind of moving forward that has the, the surrounding institutions of higher education that are able to help support kind of from that research angle and lens. And so a few entities that I know that are going for this money that are very competitive, the city of Birmingham, the city of Little Rock, I know that, that Rhode Island is building out a Providence-centric application. Miami is, is probably going to go forward, and they're extremely competitive. I know that New Orleans is leading Madison, Wisconsin, Knoxville, Tennessee, San Antonio, Texas. It's, yeah, it's, it's really across the board. There are a number of Kansas. I'm not sure what you know, MSA, Metropolitan Statistical Area, that they're focusing on at this point, but Kansas is very far ahead of the game, as is Indiana, which I think is going to have a, a central Indiana, Indianapolis-focused application. And so one thing that I think that we're seeing in this first go-around, the communities that are going for it have to be in that place where they go for the designation in the planning grant money because they're not far along to immediately go for implementation funds. And then I think that we're going to see a lot of municipalities that may not go for it this cycle, but after they see the benefits that are coming and their peer cities winning planning grant money and potentially implementation grant money, I think we'll see a lot more applicants in, in the next funding cycle as well. Okay, understood. I think maybe I want to talk about DC as an example of, of whether it may or may not be a good example city for this program. I think Blake, I wanted to hear a little bit from you just because you've built a tech company in DC in one of the focus areas of this, you know, Tech Hubs program and just your experience in general building a company from scratch, from seed all the way up to being a unicorn sized 800 employee company that you were, like you were talking about before. But maybe you can just share your experience doing that in DC. And I think that might tie into to what we're talking about here. Yeah, sure, Paige. Absolutely. Happy to. So, you know, I, I finished Harvard Business School just trying to, you know, figure out what the company should be and what problem we were really solving and, and then where we should be located. And as it became clear that 
identity verification was the core challenge to solve for across a variety of different parts of the economy. You know, how do you verify if somebody's uh, military to help a brand honor service without having that person over-disclose information like their social security number and their address history, which is not relevant at all to the transaction. And FTC data shows military families suffer from identity theft at twice the rate of the general public. So that was a real passion point for me as a you know, third-generation soldier taking care of family. And as we got deeper into it, at the time, the Department of Commerce and uh, President Obama's administration had the national strategy for trusted identities in cyberspace. And, and they were basically saying, hey, instead of making Americans create a new login and verify who they are with typically a credit bureau, and you can see how that goes. There's a lot of folks who don't have credit history and, and there's correlations you know, to historically underserved communities, things like that. So it's annoying for more affluent folks, excluding other folks. But anyway, it doesn't make sense for somebody to reprove who they are at multiple agencies. Why don't we just verify them once and then let that verified data and the login move with them across agencies. And, and, and so as I realized, oh my goodness, there's this enormous opportunity to put people back in control of their own data through a first party consent model to apply privacy filters, to minimize the data that they're even asked to share. You then look at what geographies make the most sense. And, you know, when you're building a tech company, the first order question is, you know, where do I find engineers, software developers to, to build it? In the Bay Area at the time, the, the average turnover for a software engineer, it was 100% churn, meaning that odds were if you hired somebody, you had them for 12 months and you were looking to just backfill. So, you know, instead of stacking and building a larger and larger engineering department, you were just, just treading water as an achievement. And you think about the loss of institutional knowledge when tenure is that short and turnover is high. New York and Boston had smaller engineering talent pools and you had pretty stiff competition from venture back companies that were there. And then you look at DC and from an institutional standpoint, if you think about the institutions and the, the entities that are involved as potential customers and providers of identity, it's, it, it is government agencies. It's why our driver's license is a national ID card. The passport is a national ID card. But you also have the human capital element part of it too. And you've got great universities in the area. And I'm sure David will talk a little bit more about that. And, and so, you know, I said, oh my goodness, rather than, you know, compete in this red ocean, I'd, I'd rather just go and have a different culture in DC of, a, of what you would associate with a typical high growth tech startup that is normally found on the West Coast. But because the nature of our business belongs more on the East Coast in DC, and if I can't compete with government contractors in, in terms of creating an environment that, that software developers are really attracted to in terms of building something de novo into, you know, the identity layer of the internet, then I have no business, you know, being an entrepreneur in this particular field. <laughs> you know, it's so, so you're kind of looking at those building blocks that George referenced, right? Who are the customers, the institutions that anchor it? DC's got a ton of that, the three-letter agencies on sort of the Intel community side and the defense side, but also uh, for agencies that serve the public, most of the agencies are, are located here. You've got great human capital that is expert in cybersecurity and you don't have a lot of other competition from other, you know, high growth tech companies. And that was actually a huge advantage to be a big fish in a smaller pond. I think, I think now with Amazon coming and everything else, it's, it's probably transitioning a bit. 
Uh, but then you think about what is the other thing that you need? You need financing. And that's honestly where I think DC is the weakest. So was happy to partner with Evan Burfield to help found K Street Capital back in the day. I still remember going on a run with him where yep. he explained what he wanted to do and get all these folks in K Street who are connected. And instead of stroking 25 and 50K, you know, checks into restaurants, let's have them write checks into high growth, you know, tech companies that are focused on innovating, you know, in the DC ecosystem where they can create a lot of jobs and where those folks and their expertise can really help them grow. So almost creating like a synthetic portfolio of skills and capability that a VC would typically bring to bear across a group of angels who are expert in the government space. And then I think everything else is just what's common to building a business, like, you know, making sure that you're solving a real problem that matters to customers, codifying your business to make it scalable and finding a business model. But those first order things about Am I swimming, you know, kind of with the current instead of against it for cybersecurity and for identity being in DC is definitely swimming with the current and the challenges that I've faced with early stage financing were much easier to overcome than other challenges like hiring software engineering teams or having to fly out to see customers that weren't geographically close in a pre-Zoom era, you know, so so it's just kind of trade-offs and net-net DC ranked above all the other geos, which is why we're, we're based here. That's great. I, I really like your example because I think a lot of companies think of DC as a place only where you come if you're trying to sell to just the government or you're a government contractor. And I, there's so much opportunity, I think, for tech companies to, to, to take advantage of selling to the government, but also being you know just normal, high-growth, private tech companies that sell to everybody else too. It's just sort of like a nice amplifying factor. But I don't know, David, I, I'd love to hear your perspective on this too, because you also have a, a company that you you built from scratch in DC. And you know the other side of this on the government side as well. And you sort of like know the existing infrastructure of DC. So yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree with, the, with, you know, 99% of what Blake said, I would say 100, but I I can't agree 100% with anything, except my, my wife, but I, I totally, by the way, is also a Q Street investor. Yeah, she is. But, but no, I agree with, with, with everything that Blake said. I mean, I think, first of all, if you think, you know, if you're an entrepreneur out there and you're trying to start a business and you're trying to think about where do I locate it, that's probably the most important decision you're going to make. And I think a lot of us make that decision by default based on where we live. So in some ways, it's just, you know, either a, a happy coincidence or an unhappy coincidence. But for me, I'd say it's a happy coincidence that I was in DC when I started Curated. But there's a lot of really compelling reasons to start a business in DC. And I'll, and I'll sort of like repeat a few of them that Blake said. I, I do think that, you know, we do have a very highly educated workforce, which is the most important thing to starting and scaling a business is the availability of talent. And I do think that, that, sort of talent and geography, that dynamic has changed obviously radically since the advent of the pandemic. And Procurated, we came into founding with the intention of having everyone be located together in DC. Before the pandemic, we were all in a in a tiny glass box inside of a WeWork across from the, the Hilton on Connecticut Avenue. Obviously, that changed a lot after the pandemic. And we, like a lot of companies, saw the opportunity to 
avail ourselves of talent across the country, which we did. And I think that's been a successful growth strategy for us and obviously for, for thousands of companies. But DC does have an extraordinary reservoir of talent. As Blake said, the talent might skew a bit towards technology workers who have some of them connection or affinity or an adjacency to the work that government does, like like insecurity and identity, but not necessarily. I saw an interesting study by CBRE that said that DC actually had the fifth largest tech talent pool in North America, which is which is pretty impressive and probably something that we don't really brag about enough. But thinking about DC as a place to start a business, I, I do think that sometimes we make a mistake in the tech community here of almost being like defensive or apologizing for the presence of the federal government here. And to say, well, we're not a company too. We're we're very diverse in our in our, you know, in our tech community. And it's true. And there's lots of great tech companies that have nothing to do with government. But I think, you know, you never hear Los Angeles apologizing for being the entertainment capital of the world or New York for being the tech or the finance capital of the world. And I don't think we should apologize for it either. I think that you know, the government can be an extraordinary incubator, either officially or unofficially, uh, for startups. And, and it's something that's playing out for procurated. Think about the government. So first of all, you know, there is, I think, a, a hunger for the government to change and to modernize and to present itself more of like a consumer-oriented enterprise in the way that it Builds technology in the way that it serves customers, also known as citizens. And I think the government also has developed over years, and some may not believe this, but I've seen it happen in, in real life, a sense of humility that it, it can't do everything itself. It can't be as nimble as the private sector can be. And I think to address both the desire to be more modern and the recognition that it can't always do things as quickly as the private sector, I, I've seen firsthand the government looking more and more to partners in the private sector to build applications for it. And, and Blake's a great example of this, you know, to be able to, to provide really 22nd century, you know, applications for government. That's the first thing. The second thing about government is just its scale. You know, it's startling how big the government is. We do most of our work with state and local governments and a, a little bit with federal. But state and local governments spend $2 trillion a year buying goods and services. You know, if it were, you know, a, a, a private sector company, it would be the largest company in the world. The federal government in the U.S. is the largest single buyer in the world, right? So you have the biggest customer in the world here in D.C. at your, at your doorstep. And the, the power of government spending and the importance of government spending to a startup or to any company I think is even more pronounced in the economic times that we're about to venture into. So, and I, this is where I was going to show that chart if I can pull it up. Yeah. Okay. So we have a, a, a nice chart that shows for your, your video viewers here, what happens in a recession. So you can see, maybe not a very good ad for DC technology here paid with it. But you can see in this chart that ever since the 1970s, every single time there's a government, there's a recession, the government spends more money, right? And it's been true. You can see it here and, and obviously most pronounced during the short recession during COVID. 
this is going to happen again. And, and George, you know, talked a lot about this incredible expenditure of money around the tech hubs, but it's happening in all parts of, in all parts of the government. And so when you are a company trying to find your footing, trying to get started early stage, you need, by definition, you need customers, right? You need to show traction to your investors. And the government's a great way to do it, especially if you see, you know, private, potential private, large private sector companies that could be good customers cutting back on spending as we enter a recession. The government's not cutting back. So I think the government is a great, great partner for governments and a great opportunity to tap into a lot of spending and a lot of opportunity if you can find, you know, a real need out there. Not only that, like, I think the government as a customer is is one thing that's pretty tremendous, but there's also a ton of non-dilutive funding through the government for early stage companies researching and developing and building things that often gets forgotten about. And I think for those of us who have been in this game for a while and founded companies and understand cap tables, in the very beginning, you don't really want actually that much venture money on your cap table. You'd rather have less of it so that you can maintain some ownership over time and and have some control of it. And so it's just something I, I say for any founders that are listening, because I think it's worth we're, th- we're thinking about and a lot of the the agencies that give those grants are based in DC. So there's just a natural ecosystem around being able to, you know, meet those people, discover those grants and and successfully apply to them that's worth considering. 100%. Uh, yeah. yeah. But uh, but I was going to say, George, one thing you mentioned to me that I thought was interesting is the because we were talking about like DC as an example of a city that could be a tech hub, could is there any, it seems like DC by itself can't succeed in that endeavor, but there would be a much more compelling case for a tech hub to be like a DMV tech hub, pulling in some of the resources from Virginia and Maryland, since we're all within one hour of of, an, of each other. So it is one geographic area, really. But yeah, maybe you can share your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, DC could definitely be competitive in, in and of its own right. It's just more of a matter of kind of, like I said, you know, collaboration is the name of the game. So I think any sort of applicant and entity would be that much more strong if it were a DMV application, thinking about, you know, the different industry partners that maybe aren't in DC proper, but that are in Alexandria, right? Or Arlington or McLean or Bethesda or whatever it might be. Then thinking about the fact that thinking about political leadership, not just from DC, but having, you know, Governor Youngkin and Governor Moore, you know, being teamed up on this to try and bring a DMV area hub. So, so thinking about all those different pieces that, that that show that there's a lot more interest and in, in influence and political power and in buy-in from stakeholders across the board. So definitely see the benefit of a DMV application, especially given that you know, the MSA is the sixth largest metropolitan statistical area in, in the country. So it would definitely make sense to be able to get a hub in the area. Interesting. Very cool. So unless you guys have other specific things you wanted to bring up related to the tech hubs, I think I want to move to the, like, how does this impact investors and, and founders in general? Because this is the thing that I'm sort of struggling with understanding as an investor. How can we be weighing the impact of these potential tech hubs and, and how can we enable that to, should that impact our investment decisions today or shouldn't it? Or are there other takeaways that we should be thinking about, I think, as we as we invest. Because we mostly invest in DC, obviously the DMV area, but I'd say about a little bit less than half of our investments come from across the whole US. So it's 
It's just something on our mind. Like I'm just thinking about Procurated and ID.me. Let's say that DC, well, fast forward five years, DC isn't a tech hub. Does that mean that maybe it makes sense for those companies to move toward the area where the tech hub is that's relevant to them? Do you, do you imagine that will end up happening or? I could certainly see benefits to, to things like that, but it's also, you know, ID.me is an example, right? Can, not that y'all necessarily want to, carry the, this capacity, but you all could be a lead entity and, and pull together, you know, state and local government or institutes of higher education, et cetera. But, but just thinking that you come from, from such a, a strong place to speak towards why, you know, the DMV should have a cybersecurity focused application. And you're an example of an industry partner who would potentially want to be involved in that process, right? So that's where I think it's kind of using your voice in, in the expertise that, that one brings. Yeah. I mean, Blake, did you ever seriously consider moving the headquarters a- away from D.C.? Just curious. Well, yeah. Oh, I mean, we're <laughs> we're in Northern Virginia for a reason. The, yeah. I passed my feedback along to the city council in, in D.C. There's no incentive that makes sense for entrepreneurs to stay within the district, really. I mean, they've made some targeted concessions for companies like Living Social that didn't pan out, but like no coherent strategy and aligned incentive. And that's why, you know, look, Mandiant acquired by Google is Alexandria-based, Tenable and Amit Yoran, who, you know, right in Northern Virginia as well. You got the three-letter agencies and everything else. There's a concentration of the cybersecurity companies in Northern Virginia for a reason, because within the DMV metro, between talent and uh, and just a business-friendly environment, that's, that's why I think you see like the high-growth companies, especially those that are going to go public or get acquired by very large technology companies, they're, they're here. So there's some local incentives within the region that definitely matter as far as where a company is situated and, and when. And it's, it's important for policymakers to be aware of how their policies impact incentives because business owners have agency and are going to make rational choices. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And did you ever consider moving it outside of the DMV? I guess I just sort of like loop them in together because it's all this one hour beltway. No, I think like for us, for the nature of what we do, I think there's certain locations that companies should always be. D- DC is the is the fit for IDME in, in terms of your your core legal identity, but then there's also other attributes like did you serve in the military that's relevant to nonprofits and to private sector organizations? Even things like uh, identity as a shared service across benefits programs. So HUD and FEMA and SNAP and everything else. I mean, when you're trying to get everyone on the same page to say, stop making everyone verify who they are, especially in a disaster zone where they're like lined up at trailers for hours, just do that once at any one of the trailers and let them let them just have a single sign on at like an iPad, you know, kiosk that they can just like fly right through. You need to be close. And so there's strategic advantages to the geographic proximity that, yeah, look, Zoom can mitigate some of that if you need to find the best talent, but there's no substitute for FaceTime uh, in, yeah. in relationships that matter. And so, so we're in the right spot. And I think, I think that's true for any company. Like energy companies, I wouldn't be surprised if they prefer, you know, Texas or North Dakota and things like that because they're close to those industries. I think San Francisco for like really deep tech type stuff still makes a lot of sense. And so it's just about 
finding the right context for your company to have the the strongest tailwind. Very cool. Think Paige, like you know, the case for DC is not always the e- always the easiest case. DC proper and Blake sort of talked about that a little bit. I think that part of you know the foundational part of growing and scaling a business, as Blake was saying earlier, really is talent, is people. And, you know, as Blake was talking about the 100% churn in the Valley among tech workers, no one wants that. And I, I think that a big compelling reason for someone to come to work in a place like IDME or, or hopefully procurated and to stay for their career or a large part of their career is around mission and a belief that the work that they're doing matters. They're not just building, you know, the next cannabis finder or a dog walking app, right? That the work they're doing actually matters to real people to keep their identity safe, in, in Blake's case, in our case, to help people in government find the suppliers that they need for really critical, mission-critical work that affects citizens. And when you as a CEO can connect the daily work of your team to the outcomes of citizens and give them a sense of mission, they work hard, they love their work, they feel passionate and knock on wood, they stay. And I think that, you know, with all due respect, moving a company like ID Me or Procurated to Salt Lake City or Kansas City or other great cities who probably are listening to this to this podcast might be more economically viable, maybe a lower tax burden. But for us, and and I don't think case of Trooper Blake. And George also, but the talent that we find in DC often has a, a sense of mission that is adjacent to government. A lot of people come here to be in DC because it's the city of government. And when they then join a company like ours or, or Blake's or George's, that sense of mission and that sense of wanting to make a contribution in the world stays with them. And hopefully they stay with us. 100%. Couldn't agree with that more. I think that's a really good point. I mean, I, I even have considered leaving DC several times, but no matter where I go, I'm like, I'm never going to find the group of people that I I can interact with and new people all the time, right? It's not like the same people. It's always new people. There's just so many that are mission-driven, highly educated, and and really passionate about what they're doing. So on that note, thank you guys so much. This was incredible. I think this will be a very highly listened to episode. I appreciate thanks, the time. Baby. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Yeah. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks.